The following is a North Carolina Baptist resource. For more, visit ncbaptist.org. What does it mean to abide? Like when you hear verses, I know, say it again. Live. Mm-hmm. To live. Immerse. Yes, to immerse. To dwell. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. To rest in. There's a definition that I like. It's really simple. To abide is to remain stable or fixed in, to continue in a place or to rest. It's just um, when I think of that Psalm, Psalm 91, there's a visual picture I get of I'm from a city. And so I see when you go through that Psalm, it's he will rescue you from this and he will save you from that. And I just have pictures of the city. And so when I think of that, I think of being stable. I will say there's something about the idea of being stable, I guess, because we as women, we do a million things. And I personally wear a lot of hats. So stability seems like a special thing. But then also rest, <laughs> that elusive word rest. <laughs> so what I would like us to do today is actually look at Psalm 15. Usually John 15 comes to mind when people hear this, the word abide. Right. Uh, but I. I don't know why. I just felt like the Lord was leading me to Psalm 15. So that's where we'll be. And there's always a lot to learn from David and his words. I'd like to read it. I'm going to read it from this version because that one's different than what I'm working with. So if you have your Bibles, I will give you a second. We're doing Psalm 15. And David says, Lord, who can dwell in your tent? Who can live on your holy mountain? The one who lives blamelessly practices righteousness, and acknowledges the truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue, who does not harm his friend or discredit his neighbor, who despises the one rejected by the Lord but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his word whatever the cost, who does not lend his silver at interest or take a bribe against the innocent, the one who does these things will never be shaken. It's the Lord's word. Okay, so this is random. This is, it's not random. You'll see where I'm going. So I'm a baker. Um, Prior to my job, it was my full-time job, I baked crazy cakes, things that were just in people's minds, thought bubbles. If someone could think of it, I wanted to be able to create it for people's weddings, birthdays, things like that. Um, As much as I love baking, though, the baking process was not the part that brought me the most joy. It was actually recipes, crazily enough. the idea of taking a recipe and making it mine or finding out what was wrong with it and fixing it is actually more fun than this. I don't know why. I do enjoy the end result here, these types of things. But my favorite thing to do is actually tweak recipes. And one of the things that's true about recipes is that a good recipe is always easily understandable and consistently reproducible. That's how you know it's a good recipe. Easily understandable consistently reproducible. Well, a few years ago, a friend of mine, we went to dinner at their house. She had several people over and she made a pound cake and the pound cake was delicious, but it wasn't quite right. Something was wrong with it. It wasn't baked all the way or something. So I asked her for the recipe because I needed to know whether this was a user error or a recipe issue. So I think I played with this recipe probably for a month. I just kept making this cake over and over again. It didn't even make sense, but I just needed to know how to make this cake Wonderful. Hey, if you go down that way, yeah, no big deal. (laughs) Um, I needed to know how to make this cake. Wonderful. So after I made this cake a million times, I entered it into, (laughs) 
into the church little fair and it won. So I was like, okay. And I, that's how the whole business got started. That's another one of my friends. Hey, boo. Um, so that's how my whole business got started. Well, where am I going with this? To me, I see Psalm 15 sort of like a recipe. Uh, if you read the beginning in Psalm 15, well, part one says, Lord, who can dwell in your tent? Who can live on your holy mountain? It's space. Please feel free. It's space. Okay. And then after that, I see the recipe begin. It starts with virtues, and it says, you add live, bl- living blamelessly, practicing righteousness, and acknowledging truth. Be careful with the vices in the next verse that, that uh, basically do not slander, do not harm friends or discredit neighbors. And like in my recipe, there's parts where you give instruction. So in my recipe, I say, crack all the eggs first in a clear container so that you can see if there's any shells and then drop them in one at a time and beat them in little by little. So I give instruction and I feel like this does the same thing. Um, from there, you would go on to uh, this part, who would despise... Who despises the one rejected by the Lord? You throw and honors those who fear the Lord, keeps his word, whatever the cost. I think it feels like if you add all those things in and pop them in an oven, right, he would come out with the end. The one who does these things will never be shaken. And I know that life is not like that, right? Life is not like just throw it in the oven and pull it out and it'd be like that. Life is hard, but often I wish it was like that because it's a formula. David has given us a formula for how to live. Essentially, this text, this whole text is a reflection an outward reflection of our hearts. Would you agree? You go through it. David is asking this question because David wants to know some things. David has seen things and experienced things, and he has, yeah. Sometimes I get misty when I think about David's relationship with the Lord. Another verse that I think would be an incredible recipe would be 1 Corinthians 13, right? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, that's convicting, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And what's true about this recipe is that what it does not say is that love is patient or kind or does not envy depending on the person or the circumstance or the day of the week it is, right? The reality is, is that love is all of those things. That's God's recipe for love. And if we change one part of it, we don't have his recipe. And what's beautiful about this is it's a good recipe, right? Because it's easy, easily understandable and consistently reproducible. The same is true here in our passage. So it starts off with, Lord, who can dwell in your tent? Who can live on your holy mountain? Uh, I read the message Bible version of this, and it said, I'm going to read it to you. I thought it was hilarious. It said, God, who gets invited to your dinner, to dinner at your place? How do we get to get on your guest list? I'm sure that's not what David was trying to invoke, but it was interesting. David is talking to God. David knows what it means to talk to a holy God. David is asking a serious and weighty question, and he's not asking for a guest list. He wants to understand the character that's needed to dwell and live with Yahweh. David knows that God's house is holy and that the Lord's home is forever. 
and it's only for believers. He has experienced the tent of meeting, and he's experienced um, giving sacrifices on the high places. So David knows what it means to dwell with the Lord, to experience him. But he wants to know what are the conditions to enjoy those privileges here and in eternity. And by virtue of the fact that David is asking this question, we should understand that it's not for everyone. I think that sometimes can be scary. The first, David is asking two things, and the first one is, Lord, who can dwell in your tent? Well, the tent David is referring to is the portable tent that was set up in the wilderness for the children of Israel. And they would go in there, they would come, and they would experience God there, and then they would leave. That tent was temporary, and it was supposed to be temporary, but it was where they would experience God. So David is asking, who here gets the opportunity to enter into your tent and experience you? But the next question, he progresses that ask and he says, who can live on your holy mountain? And the holy mountain in the Bible is talking about Mount Zion. Mount Zion is where the Lord resides in the Bible. So he's asking, separate from experiencing you in this temporary tent, how do we get to live with you forever? And for David, Mount Zion is often called the city of David. And it's also called the city of God. It's the place on earth here where David built his citadel, where David built his uh, palace and where Solomon ultimately built the temple, which is fitting that it would be called Zion. The Lord knows what he's doing. In the Old Testament, Zion refers to the children of Israel, which are the people of God. And in the New Testament, Zion refers to God's spiritual kingdom, which is the church, which is us. David is asking, who gets to live forever with you as a city, citizen of the city of Zion? Or really, he's asking, who will you recognize here so that you will recognize them with you in eternity? It's beautiful. David's asking this because, like I said, he's witnessed some things and he's, he's experienced some things. He watched what happened, how serious God is about his holiness with this, the ark, right? You remember that? Just lean on it and you're taken out. David has wept, wept before the Lord and David has sinned before the Lord. And David has experienced great forgiveness, deep uh, repentance and forgiveness. So he understands what it means to both sin against the Lord and then to worship him, to experience him. And it was his dream to build the temple. God didn't allow it, but he wanted to build that because he knew what it meant to enter into his holy place. David knew that it's no small thing to be in the presence of God. And sometimes I think we lose sight of that. I think sometimes we honor our pastors more than we honor the true and living God that we come before. And we lose sight of that. Charles Spurgeon, we all know who Charles Spurgeon is. He has a quote, and I'm just going to tell you that I read up just a little bit of Spurgeon, and he was hitting me so hard that I really needed to put it away because he was a little aggressive. <laughs> um, but in his Treasury of, da- of David commentary, he said, the unthinking many imagine it to be very e- a very easy matter to approach the Most High. And when engaged in worship, they have no questionings of their heart as to whether they are fit for it. But truly humbled souls often shrink under a sense of utter unworthiness and would not dare approach the throne of God of holiness if it were not for God himself. Our Lord, who is our advocate, who does abide in the holy heavenly temple because his righteousness endures forever. David is rightfully and respectfully in all of God. So the answer to David's questions imply that there are some who may profess and even convince themselves and us that they are believers but they may be deceiving us. They're not deceiving the Lord. The Lord knows who he's chosen. The Lord knows who's been elected. And I think David is saying, 
I have all these people around me, and they say they love me, and they say they love you, but how do I know? The list in this, this whole chapter seems impossible, but clearly Jesus has made it possible, right? Jesus walked this earth and lived every one of these attributes. And so this text that we're going to look through, Psalm 15, is really pointing us to Jesus Christ, which always blows my mind. How even in the Old Testament written so long ago, before Jesus even walked the earth, that it was pointing directly to him. But Jesus is him. So let's look at it. Okay, what is Psalm 15 actually teaching us? Verses 2 and 3, I'm going to read them, say, The one who lives blamelessly practices righteousness and acknowledges the truth in his heart. Remember, David is asking who can be with you, who does not slander with his tongue, who does not harm his friend or discredit his neighbor. David asked the question, who gets to experience you here and who can live with you forever? And I believe that the first two verses here are challenging us to observe. And now what do I mean by observe? To observe means to fulfill or comply with a social or legal or ethical or religious obligation. Similarly, it's to comply with, to abide by, to keep, to conform to. So David here in verses two and three, I believe, is asking us to observe, to conform to who God says enters into his holy temple. In this first two verses, you'll notice. You'll notice a triplet. So in the Bible, different writers write in different styles. Jude is like this. Jude wrote in triplets. So he lists things in sets of three. And David did that several times here. I'm going to be honest in advance. My PowerPoint is a little goofy because I had to send it to somebody. So I, I just noticed something's off, but I may be flicking back and forth. Y'all just have grace. Y'all have grace. Um, but this is a triplet. The one who lives blamelessly practices righteousness and acknowledges the truth in his heart. The, this verse is cutting at our walk, our work and our word. What does it say about our walk? Blameless. Lives blamelessly. What about our work? Practices righteousness. And what about our word? Acknowledges the truth, even in our heart. Right. Because we all know that what comes out of our mouth is just an exhibition of what's going on in our hearts. Right. How in the world do you do this? Raise your hand if you've lived one week blamelessly. (laughs) Right. I was I'm always waiting when I ask questions like that for one person to be like me. And I'm like, show me the way, please. David has. But. Um, so what does this mean? What does this mean? This means living a life that's holy, right? A life marked by integrity, accepting the righteousness that Christ, the Holy One, has given us, and then actually going for it, doing it. We've been made new in Christ, and we should be living that way. Some translations, instead of saying lives blamelessly, says walks uprightly. And I like that visual picture. A few weeks ago, I was watching a show. It was a nonsensical show, but it was centered. um, It was filmed in Africa and there were ladies in the background with big baskets on their heads. Y'all know what I'm talking about. And when I watch those pictures of those ladies, I always think to myself, they have to have incredible strength and incredible strength. I mean, incredible, um, incredible neck strength. And they had to have practice. Right. Like you, you don't just throw a giant basket on your head and know how to do it. But what also struck me is that leaning just a little bit too far to the left or just a little bit too far to the right would throw the whole thing off. Right. And that's a good visual picture of walking uprightly, living blamelessly. The Bible says that the road that leads to 
the Lord is a narrow one. And if we get caught up going to the left and going to the right, we often can run the risk of losing everything. I've experienced it. To walk uprightly or to live blamelessly is to not stray too far to the left or the right, to be guided by integrity, to pursue godliness. That's a great picture of the Christian life. And instead of being stressed out by this, God God invites us to abide in him. Now, we have to be careful because this is an invitation from God, but we need to make sure we're being invited to the right party. What God is saying is abide in me. And if I were to use my imagination, I would see that me right here, the big M-E, the main one, as our main emphasis. God is inviting us to abide in him and him be our main emphasis for our lives. And then, but I see the other M-E is just a series of messy events, right? Those things that we create when we're living in our flesh daily, day after day, when we're not abiding in the Lord, who's supposed to be our main emphasis, we're left with nothing but a bunch of messy events. It's self-inflicted drama. And often in the midst of our worst drama, self-inflicted, we like to loop other people in because misery loves company, right? (laughs) God has given us his word and he has given it to us as a tool for how to walk how to work, and how to keep our word. So we have to observe or comply with those rules. And the Bible gives us tons of lessons. Titus 3, 1 through 11 teaches us about how to live in the world. The book of James is just a whole playbook. He talks about our tongue. (laughs) He talks about life's trials. He talks about humility and more. But ultimately, we have the Gospels where we see Jesus Christ. He modeled it for us. As we read John 15, which is a verse that would talk about abiding. John 15, four says, abide in me. And here he's talking about the main emphasis, capital M-E. Verse two is not about achieving perfection or living perfectly, because we can't. It's about a heart that's conformed to God's word. It's the day-to-day willingness to love the world, to beat for your community, some of what Jesus Christ has been for us, and that is truth. Be for your community justice. Be for your community joy. Be for your community hope. The next triplet, so these would be the virtues. The next triplet would be the vices, and it says, who does not slander with his tongue, who does not harm his friend or discredit his neighbor. This is the person who does not use their tongue as a weapon. We have all heard it before, but the way we use our tongues matters, right? The things we say matter. Using our sarcasm to jab playfully, to insult subtly, or to rebuke harshly is usually sin. Saying things with the motive of being hurtful and calling it brutal honesty is usually sin. Engaging in conversations and using language that is coarse and destructive is usually sin, and talking about people behind their backs, say it with me, is usually sin. You don't have to raise your hand, but that's convicting to me. How many of you can think of a situation where your words caused a messy event? Or how many of you can remember what it felt like to be a victim of that, where people use their words to destroy you? Who does not slander with his tongue? Uh, Spurgeon has another quote. Spurgeon is challenging us to observe, to obey, to conform to God's word. Spurgeon wrote, some men's tongues bite more than their teeth. Oh, 
I'll say it again. Some men's tongues bite more than their teeth. Their tongue is not steel, but it cuts, and its wounds are very hard to heal. But its worst wounds are not with the edge of our, to the edge of our face, but to our backs when our faces are turned. That's a great segue. Thank you, Spurgeon. The next part of this is she does not harm her friends or who does not harm his friend. So I'm a lover of words. I love big words. I love to understand the different meanings of words, how you can use one word one way or another. And my pet peeve is when somebody mispronounces a word. So like they could be in a whole long dramatic moment. And I'd be like, oh, but can I just tell you, salmon has a silent L. So you don't like, it's just a thing for me. Like I just, <laughs> I love words. But I also understand the power that words wield, right? Words are powerful. So I wouldn't call myself sensey, right? I'm not overly sensitive, but I can remember even a, a season where people have said things that they've just lingered, right? They cut and you, you repeat those words over from time to time. They linger. And I can remember a conversation. I was a Christian, but I had not in, accepted the Lord's invitation to abide in him, the main emphasis. So I spent all my days on the verge of one messy event after another. And I remember talking to someone who I idolized, obviously, on the verge of a messy event. I said to them, do you view me as weak? And they, they were immature and they didn't really grasp the power of their words or how I viewed them. And they said, yeah. Okay, so I'm an African-American woman, right? And so weak woman is not a thing, right? I come from a long tradition of strong women. So when someone called me weak, something went wrong. But what I did not do, what I should have done, but what I did not do was turn to Nehemiah 8.10 that said, do not, grieve the, do not grieve for the Lord is your strength. Or Isaiah 41.10, do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. Or Exodus 15.2 that said, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. Or Chronicles 16.11 that said, seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Nope, I decided no one's going to ever call me weak again. So I became aggressive. I couldn't stand the thought of crying. I wanted to work harder and longer than anyone else. I just changed who I was because the person said yes to my question. And I couldn't recognize how my personality change could have been sinful, even in my interactions with other people. I couldn't see that I was being too much. But when the Lord did allow me to see it, when he removed the scales from me, was when I had a baby girl, a little girl, and she was sensitive, and I was trying to change her. I don't want you to be sensitive. People are going to think you're weak. I was trying to train out of her what God had put in her. So instead of me trusting the Lord with her and honing it in her, I was trying to just make her a broken clone of me, living in all my little messy events. Thank God. She's older now. She's, oh, the baby's about to turn 21. I don't want to tell nobody that. <laughs> She's still sensey, but God is using it. It's a, it's a gift, and I'm grateful that God showed me me. But somebody's words harmed me. And I was using them to harm someone else. Our words have power. Our words have power, but our words are not the only way that we hurt people. All we have to do is look at ourselves and view our selfishness, our laziness, 
our reckless decisions, the ones we don't think about the consequences till it's too late and we want to run around saying we're sorry, but we've done all the damage, our impatience, our own anger, our prejudice, our disrespect, our discontentment, our complaining, our favoritism, our dishonesty, and our own gossip. That's another great segue. The third vice here is she does not discredit her neighbor. In Matthew 22, when the Pharisees were uh, trying to test Jesus, they asked him, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And what did he say? Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And what did he say after that? And love your neighbors as yourself. Proverbs 22.1 says that a good name is more desirable than great riches. So clearly, this is a big deal, right? One of the chief ways that we discredit our neighbor is through gossip. Gossip is vile. Gossip is sinful. And it's so darn easy to get caught up in. It's the truth. Raise your hand in here if you've ever been robbed. Have you ever been a victim of robbery? I've been robbed, right? And if you've ever been robbed, you know that it leaves you kind of feeling like you can't trust for a while. You feel vulnerable. You feel overly exposed. And it's easy to stay in that space. I have four kids, and we are from Philadelphia, and I can't tell you how many bikes have been stolen. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Me, personally, I was raised in Philly. I can't tell you how many of my own bikes were stolen, and then my kids' bikes get stolen. But I think the saddest event of all was when I sent them out to ride their bikes, and all four of their bikes were stolen at once. <laughs> my poor babies. It was the saddest thing. And though they were sad, I just kept thinking about, do you know what this cost? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Replacing one at a time makes sense. Four at once is a whole lot. Um, but gossip... Gossip has a similar effect. Gossip is taking someone else's information without their consent and making use of it as if it was yours to manage. I'll say that again. Gossip is taking someone else's information without their consent and making use of it as though it was yours to manage. So what would you say that means about gossip? It's a lot like stealing. It's a lot like robbing somebody. And it leaves people feeling victimized in the same ways. Gossip is also then taking what is now considered stolen goods and giving it to somebody else. Imagine if I walked into my friend's house and saw my kids four bikes up under a Christmas tree with bows on them ready to go to somebody else. Right. I'd feel robbed again. Right. Gossip is the same way. And don't be deceived. It's not just the giver of the gossip who's in sin, but the receiver. I read somewhere that the, the only way to end drug trafficking is to end the demand. And I believe it's the same thing with gossip. If less of us were willing to be receivers, the carriers would have to end their little trade, wouldn't they? If we want to be with him, then we have to be like him. We have to observe, comply with, conform to the Lord's commands by abiding in capital M-E, the main emphasis, and not little M-E, our messy events. So first we observe. What's next? Let's read 4A. 4A says, who despises the one rejected by the Lord, but honors those who fears the Lord. In response to David's questioning, the next thing I think we need to do is to believe. To believe here is in this context is to accept. Well, to believe is to accept something as true, feel sure of the truth of something to be convinced by it, to trust, to have confidence in it, to consider it honest, 
to love who God loves and to reject who God rejects. You have to believe what God says, right? Looking at this verse, this is not presented. This verse is not presented in a triplet, right? It's in two opposing parallels. On the one hand, you need to reject, despise who God rejects. And on the other hand, you have to love who God loves. So then who is the one rejected by the Lord? Who would we say that is? Those people who are evil, people who live consistently in sin, vile, wicked. Uh, Proverbs 6 says a worthless person, a wicked man goes around speaking dishonestly, winking his eyes, signaling his feet and gesturing with his fingers. But he always plots evil with perversity in his heart and he stirs up trouble. Sadly, this is all that is also a good recipe, right? It's easily understandable, understandable, and it's consistently reproducible. Examples of wicked, evil people would be Haman, right? Haman wanted to commit genocide or even Ahab. Ahab, God said this was the most wicked king Israel had ever had. God hates wicked people. And were it not for his grace, he would hate us, too. So then who are the godly to be godly? According to God is to have respect for and devotion to him with a goal of living a life that is holy or consecrated while here in this world. Godliness is humbly recognizing God's sovereignty over everything, which I think we forget that God is sovereign over everything. So we don't have to try to run doll and letting that reality result in a determination to honor him in all areas. Those are people like Moses and David and Esther and Ruth and Mary and Paul and some of us in this room. I have met godly women. I have met godly men. And I, I, sometimes I feel like it's almost like I can see a halo over your head, right? <laughs> you know those people right, that you just want to be like and you can't figure out how they can always be that way. So how do we do this? What does this look like practically? It's the choices we make on a daily basis. People know what you believe by watching how you live. Romans 12 says, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. It's a good recipe for godliness. But notice all of that's in the present tense. So God is telling us, go do it. It's a life full of devotion to our Lord and his people. So when the Lord says, be devoted to one another in love and honor, we show that we believe what he believes and we love his people by doing just that. Okay, so at one point I had four teenagers in my home. I don't know who was praying, but we survived. Um, Two of them don't live with me anymore. But at one point, one of my teenagers was just always making poor decisions. Always, always, always. And they felt like they were being compared to one of their siblings. And I remember sitting my child down and saying, there is no difference between you and them. No one loves them more. No one thinks they're better than you. The difference between the two of you are choices. You have all been told what the standard is in our home. This one is choosing to do it. You are choosing not to. And when you choose not to, you say to me, I don't believe what you have taught us is true. And it's the same thing in our Christian walk. God has set out standards. When we choose not to, we say to him, I don't believe that what you're saying to me is true. 
So our belief is necessary. Yeah. So are you abiding in capital M-E, our main emphasis, or lowercase m-e? When we accept God's standards and measurements as truth, our lives reflect that. And this leads us to our next point. So first we should, what was the first one? Observe. The second one is believe. And now the third one, I told you, is exercise. Obviously not work out, but more like working it out. To exercise is to use or apply. Apply your faculties, your rights, or your process. It's to make use of, to put to use, to practice, to implement. This final triplet is actually very profound. Who keeps his word whatever the cost, who does not lend his silver at interest, or take a bribe against the innocent. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is Christian living on display. So we don't live in an honor-shame society, so it's kind of easy for us to scoop past certain words in these things, and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us. We actually live in more of a personal convenience culture. But this section is describing someone that has a clear conscience. They have a clear conscience, but it's not because they have an easy life. Also, I think one of the deficits we have, we were talking about this in the car, is that when you live in the Bible Belt and in good moral communities, it's kind of hard to see the standouts, right? Because we all do our devos and we do a little prayer and we say we spent time with God, but then we go about the rest of our day as if God is not necessary, like we don't need him to intervene. And when you live in a moral community, you begin to blend in and it looks okay. We're all okay. We're all Christians, right? But this brand of Christianity, the one I just described, is Christless. And I think that's the scariest part, is that we can call ourselves Christians but not need Jesus. God is known for his faithfulness, his truthfulness, and his holiness. And the type of Christianity that we need is not the kind that's devoid of the pain associated with true self-sacrifice or the scandal of being associated with Jesus. He takes his, serious, his character serious, and so should we. This is someone, this triplet is describing someone who understands that even though their conscience is clear, it comes at a cost. It says she keeps her word whatever, at whatever the cost. Nowadays, it's socially acceptable to keep my word until I no longer feel like it. Right. And I think we all understand what that means. I'm guilty of I fail all the time. I'm guilty of it. I overbook myself. I promise to text somebody and completely forget. I triple book. I spread myself too thin. And ultimately, I let people down. It's what I do. And I don't mean to do it. It's not my intention. But often I'm guilty of not keeping my word. If I tell you I'm going to text you and I don't, I haven't kept my word. But the one who experiences God is, is marked by keeping the word, their word. I was talking with a friend of mine, and she works for a huge corporation, a huge Christian corp organization. And they do contract work with large Christian churches and famous Christian speakers and authors. And a part of this job she has, she's raised up to be a manager, and she has a boss. And her boss always says to her, always do good and never look for the opportunity to take. And that can be hard when you're a huge company, right? Like we need to be able to make money. But he always says this at all their meetings, always do good and never look for the opportunity to take. Well, at one point they had a huge contract she had written and she had a huge contract with a famous speaker and the speaker was just taking advantage of them and was a Christian and they just, they didn't want any of the stuff. So they wanted to be completely refunded and it's a no refund policy. And she was waiting for her boss to have a different response to this, but he said, let them out of the contract. 
because we should always do good and not look for the opportunity to take. She was pretty blown away by it. And as she was telling me the story, I kept thinking to myself, am I willing to lead in a way that I will keep my word no matter the cost? Because he was going to eat the cost of that and he was going to have to report to whoever was higher than him. But am I that type of leader? Am I that type of person, though? Those daily we are we are faced with opportunities to keep our word. Right. Like, well, I I know I told her I'll be there at eight. But will I text her and tell her I'm running late while I finish this last episode. Or I know I promised to give them money, but now it's going to I don't have as much or I'm going to be broke. So am I going to follow through with that? Or I know I made this payment arrangement, but it's Christmas. And so I really got to get these gifts. So I don't honor that payment arrangement. Or I know I said I would do this diet with you, but I'm just going to sneak a little bit. And my best friend or my husband won't quite know. that I. <laughs> right. I think that that resonated with some people in here. <laughs> Those who experience God's words, God's word keeps his, their word, even at the threat of great and painful loss. We do this because we, it was done for us. Keeping your word is a way to exercise our faith. The choices we make daily are a direct reflection of our of where we abide. It also says who does not lend his silver at interest. Now, what does that mean? Well, in in Jewish custom, it was illegal to charge interest on a loan to a fellow Jew. You they could charge interest on a foreigner because usually foreigners were coming in from trade. So they would be. They'd have money, but most Jews were not rich. And so the ones that were, it was kind of unethical to allow them to get richer on the back of their own brothers and sisters. So to take a bribe again, I mean, to charge them interest would be impossible to pay back. Right. I could barely pay back what I have. So charging, not lending silver at interest was not being willing to get rich on the back of somebody else, not taking advantage of someone less often me. Similarly, to take a bribe against the innocent means not getting rich or powerful on the backs of orphans, widows, the oppressed, the disabled and the poor. And that seems like it's far fetched, except we watch the news and we see these rich people who pay for their kids to get higher grades on their SATs. Right. When your kids had to save and they had to study and work hard. But we watch them. One woman, she did it. Her daughter got in. She paid all this money. She did what, 14 days in jail. Right. Y'all know that would not be us. Right. (laughs) But. These people are willing to take bribes against the innocent. They're willing to let someone not be able to go to that great school so someone else can pay for their child to go when they didn't earn it. So how do we avoid doing these two things? What ways do we exercise what we believe? Practically, this is giving generously with no strings attached. Do we give generously? Like, or do we do it when we're going to be recognized? Because what this also is, is being willing to not be recognized to think for the things that we do well in this and know that in glory we will be. I think that resonates with some of us. It's giving even of my own resources, even when they're running low. It's standing up for those who are marginalized and unable to stand up for themselves. It's serving those who are considered to be society's least of these. People like refugees and immigrants, disabled vents. Homeless families and traffic girls. The common denominator between those who lend silver at interest and take a bribe against the innocent is that they both profit from someone else's lack or hard times. So how is that relevant to you? Whether you are selling Girl Scout cookies or you're a small business owner or a social worker, 
whether you're the church accountant, a, a, a super avid couponer, a CEO of a corporation or a school teacher or a lawyer. You have to be sensitive to the needs of others and are constantly challenging the motives of your own heart. Am I taking advantage of people? Am I using this to better me, even at their expense? A citizen of heaven who dwells in the tent of the Lord remembers, as Spurgeon beautifully stated, Jesus, instead of taking a reward against the innocent, died for the guilty. Okay, so first we, we was observe. Second was believe. Third was exercise. Finally, in seeking the answer to David's question, we look at 5b. The one who does these things will never be shaken. And I believe this points to our need to yield. To yield is to relinquish possession of something, to give something up. It's similar to give over, to part with, to submit. My favorite is to raise or show the white flag. The one who does these things will never be shaken. The yielding happens when we surrender or give over our wills in exchange to his. Sometimes this happens willingly with a good attitude. And sometimes he has to chase us and beat us down. And then we wave the white flag (laughs) and we surrender. But notice that the one who does these, the statement says, what does it say? The one who does these things. It doesn't say the one who thinks these things or blogs these things or talks about these things. Our yielding is in the doing, but this doing is not in our own strength. And that's beautiful because this doing is a means to a glorious end. You will never be shaken. Life will throw darts at you. You will never be shaken. About 11 years ago, my life was leveled. My husband is a recording artist. My husband, we had planted a church, uh, Things seem pretty good. I have a daughter with special needs, and I honestly thought that was going to be the hardest thing in my life was this baby girl with special needs. But then sin crept in like it always does, and the enemy does his work, and we lost everything. We lost our community. My marriage was on the rocks. I I didn't see a way forward. We lost our church. My husband lost his ability to do some of the things he was doing. We were financially strapped, and I didn't know what we were going to do. But what's funny is right before all that happened— My kids, I'm not a morning person, but my two oldest ones were in school. And so I would get them up at five in the morning on Wednesday mornings and we would walk through the book of Proverbs together. And I had them write me Proverbs and I wrote them Proverbs. And it was just, oh, it's such a sweet little time, 10 devotions. But when my life got leveled, when everything went left, my son would lay at the end of my bed every night and say, Mommy, what does the proverb say about this? I didn't want to hear that. I was angry. Right. (laughs) My feelings were hurt. But he every night my son would lay at the foot of my bed and say, what does the proverb say about this? And as we went through something else, he would say, what does the proverb say about that? And he would remind me what the proverb said, because he wanted to see honestly if my life was actually yielded to the things I said that I observe, that I exercise and I believe. He wanted to know if it was real or if I had just made that up. He was waiting to see my response. And I think that that's something we need to remember. Surrendering surrendering to the Lord is about abiding in capital M-E. But why that's necessary is because people are watching. David asks, who can dwell in your presence, Lord? And dwelling in this presence 
means letting go of our flesh and our pride, and that can be tough. This question that David asked, who can dwell in our presence, is a similar question that the jailer asked to Paul and Silas. Remember when the, the what did you call that? Earthquake. I wanted to say hurricane for some reason. I don't know why. When the earthquake happened, the jailer was scared, and he said to them, what must I do to be saved, right? It's a similar question. But we have that recipe. Psalm 15 says to live blamelessly, practice righteousness, acknowledge the truth in our heart, not slander, don't harm our friends, don't discredit our neighbors, despise the one the Lord rejects and honor the one the Lord loves. It tells us to keep our word and not lend with interest and don't benefit from others' weaknesses. And I can let you off the hook a little bit. This list is impossible. But the impossible becomes possible through the work of Jesus Christ. In John 15, 4, it says, Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself, unless it abides on the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces fruit because you can do nothing without me. And I will say our last name is Branch, so we use that a lot in my house, right? It's up everywhere. We got trees. It's just a thing. But the impossible becomes possible through Jesus Christ. So today, in reading through these David's questions, the four points we had were to observe, believe, exercise, and then yield. And if you were taking notes, you may notice that those four points actually means we need to obey. God is challenging us to obey. This psalm is a call to integrity. It's a call to repentance, to love others at the risk of great personal loss. It's a call to live blamelessly while basking in capital me and then die to yourself while living in little me. And those little me are our what? Messy events. This is a call to let go of both the sins that plague us and the sins we love. This is a call to speak the truth from our heart and at the same time take control of your tongue, to be keepers of your word even when it hurts. This call cuts at our work, it cuts at our walk, and it cuts at our words. But this shouldn't deflate us, it should excite us because this Psalm 15 is a roadmap. It's our guide to glory and the promise is so worth it. You will not be shaken and you will be able to experience the Lord temporarily and eternally. Dr. Russ Moore, he came to our school and spoke at chapel. And the thing he ended with is the world is watching. The world wants to know if this Christianity is a social club that we're in because, oh, they agree with me politically. And, oh, I like living a morally good life. But Jesus, I could take him or leave him. The world is watching and the world is in your home. The world is in your church. The world is in your community. The world is at your job. The world is in your kids' schools. The world is at Target. The world is watching. And they're watching to see if you will obey. They want to see if you will observe God's word. They want to see if when storms come, you speak peace. They want to see when people are provoking you, if you respond a certain way. They want to know, like my son wanted to know, do you really believe this? So ladies, observe God's word, believe his word, exercise it, keep calm and obey, <laughs> but please accept the invitation from the Lord to abide in me, the main emphasis, and not me 
our messy events. I'd love to pray with us real quick. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Psalm 15 and John 15 and all the rest of your word, Lord God, that is a roadmap to you. Father, thank you so much for how you have brought all of us together in this moment, Lord, and you challenge us and you equip us, Lord God. I pray that, Father, we would all have ears to hear and eyes to see, Lord. Grow us more and more in love with you, Lord God. Conform us more and more to your son's image. We love you, Father, in your name we pray. Amen.